Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Uh, we're in the final section now of our series on worship, um, just this week and the next, kind of uh, closing up the particular elements of, um, of worship. Um, and this, this final um, section is on the means of grace. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, it's, it's the word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are the means of grace, those things through which God assures us of his love to us, uh, those things through which God communicates saving grace to us uh, for our faith. So um, historically, again, uh, these are also the marks of the church, right? If you've got these things in your church, then you've got a church, and if you don't, uh, then it's probably not a, a true church. If you're, if you're not um, shaped by the word, and if you're not you don't have baptism, and if you don't have uh, the Lord's Supper as these practices that are instituted by Christ, then, um, uh, then, it, then it may not be a community that should be called the church. <laughs> um, most Christians will agree that the sacraments, are, um, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper again, uh, the sacraments are tremendously significant uh, for the life of the church, but it's been very difficult to uh, agree on exactly what happens in the sacraments, on exactly uh, how God uses the sacraments in our lives. Um, we just pretty much know that God uses the sacraments in our lives uh, to bless us. Um, so uh, we're not going to get into all the historical debates, all the theological debates. Um, there's, there's a little bit more kind of information on the sacraments in um, the little booklet that's on the the back table, APC 101, it's kind of an introduction to our church, what we believe about the sacraments and, and so forth. Um, so maybe a, a slightly more thorough version um, you can find there if you're interested. But I mainly want to give us just a biblical understanding of the, uh, just really basic, basic biblical understanding of uh, what the sacraments are in general and then what baptism is in particular. And that just sounds terribly difficult to do, even a basic biblical understanding of those things. Um, so we should probably get started. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you don't fall asleep. This is, this is me doing the theological nerd stuff. So um, no, hopefully it'll make a lot of sense and profoundly uh, transform your lives at a deep level. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll read from Matthew's gospel. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would make your word alive to us by your spirit who helps us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Remember, this is after Jesus had been raised from the dead to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, um, the sacraments in general. Um, why do we practice 
baptism? Why do we practice the Lord's Supper? Um, Basically, with regard to baptism, we do it because of this passage, uh, because Jesus instituted it right here in this passage, in in the Great Commission. Um, His... uh, some of his final moments with his disciples after the resurrection. He commissioned them to go out, make, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And then he went up uh, from heaven, uh, went up to heaven from, from them bodily. Uh, but this is where he instituted the sacrament of baptism. If you read through the Gospels, uh, through the, the record of Jesus' life and work and teachings, You might be surprised that he doesn't talk much about things like religious rites and ceremonies, rituals, right? Uh, He's the religious leader who doesn't teach us to do religious things. Um, His teachings focus more actually on our relationship with God. So the Old Testament, on the other hand, is full of instructions for temple ritual worship, practices that we would consider more religious, right? But Jesus only gives us two simple, very simple religious rituals to observe, uh, one of which only happens once in a Christian's life. So the church has always considered then the sacraments um, to be very important for the simple reason that Jesus told us to do them. He didn't tell us to do many things like this. He told us to do these things. So we're going to do these things. But the institution of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, both, they don't contain much in the way of an explanation of these uh, practices, these ordinances, right? Um, They don't contain much in terms of uh, like a justification for them, why they're important or the purpose for which Christ tells us to do these things. They don't contain much of a description of their meaning or their nature or their significance. Jesus pretty much just tells us to do these things. Um, So we also rely heavily on what the apostles taught about the sacraments um, for a fuller understanding of them. So this morning we're going to bounce around the scriptures a little bit. Uh, It's not so much just your standard exposition of of a, of a single text, uh, so bear with me for a bit. It might seem technical, but I assure you it's helpful. Uh, the two main sacraments in the Old Testament, uh, when God was dealing with his people Israel before Christ came, before the Messiah entered the picture, uh, were circumcision and the Passover. And Paul uh, briefly describes circumcision in Romans chapter 4, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's representative of sacraments, right? Uh, Paul, Paul writes in Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, right? So he was righteous by faith. He had faith in God's promises. God declared him righteous for that uh, before he was circumcised. And so then he entered into this relationship with God where the sign of that uh, relationship was circumcision, and it sealed what was already his um, by faith. So the physical act of this sacrament of circumcision pointed like a sign to a, a spiritual reality. And it also sealed that 
reality. That's a strange word, strange concept, I think, for us. Sealed that reality to Abraham like, like a guarantee of a promise. Right? The promise has been made to you. Here, I'm giving you this guarantee that it's true for you. Right? Um, so very succinctly, then, the Reformed tradition has seen the sacraments in general as signs and seals of the gracious promises of God to his people. God makes these promises, and he gives us these signs and seals, the sacraments, by which we can be assured of his promises. Uh, Bart Garrett, who's a pastor down in uh, the Bay Area, <coughs> Christ Church, um, says this in a little booklet that he's written on baptism, which is very good. Um, he says that relationships are forged with signs, symbols, seals, and tokens of affection. For example, most happily married couples have a favorite romantic place, preserve a certain love letter, or a terrible poem in my case, <laughs> um, pull out footage from the wedding ceremony from time to time, they celebrate a day of anniversary, they cherish an engagement ring and a wedding band, and they relish in a special gift given on a special occasion. Our relationship with God is no different. Signs, symbols, seals, and tokens of affections are essential to our relationship with God. It would not be complete without them. So, um, so by God's grace, in Jesus Christ, we have a real relationship with God. God the Father has chosen us for himself from before all time, and he has set his love upon us, and God the Son came into the world to save us, to make us holy, to reconcile us to God. And then God the Spirit, who inspired the Scriptures as a revelation of God's love to us, um, he's come into our hearts and he's renewed us to be able to respond to God's salvation with faith so that, so that we'd have a real relationship with God. Right? God worked and he works to give us, by his grace, a real relationship with him. And that relationship that God has with his church, which consists of gracious promises and the fulfillment of those gracious promises, and then our required response. We, we have a response that's required of us in, in, in God's word, in the scriptures. <clears throat> Theologians call that relationship the covenant of grace. Right? A, a covenant is, is a relationship that's got shape. It's got definition it's got stipulations and boundaries and things that you have to pay attention to, vows that are to be made, right? So it's a real relationship given real shape. It's given real definition, and it's the covenant of grace. It all comes to us by God's grace. And so the language of covenant, of that kind of relationship, is found throughout the scriptures, right? It's all over the place, uh, especially in the Old Testament when God makes promise after promise after promise to his people. And the whole thrust of the gospel, in fact, the whole thrust of the whole Bible is to bring us into that relationship with God which he has defined for us. Right? <clears throat> and the sacraments are signs and seals of that relationship. Signs and seals of the covenant of grace in much the same way that a wedding ring signifies and seals a marriage. Right? When you look at it, it points to the fact, I'm married. When it's given to you, it's given with a pledge. I love you and I'll be with you. Right? Um, 
So as religious rituals go, then, the sacraments are highly relational. They're highly relational, which makes sense given that our God is highly relational because our God is a trinity. So a sacrament is a physical representation of God's promises to us. So there's always these two parts to it. You've got the promise or the word. The word of God is always present, as are then the material elements, water, bread, wine. That's what makes up a sacrament, basically, right? Um, which, by the way, is, uh, is why we take them in the order that we do, why we don't practice communion the very first thing uh, as we're gathered for worship. It's because uh, the sacraments depend on the word. They hang on the word. The, the word of the gospel, the word of God's grace to us, has to come to us first because the sacraments are a reinforcement of that. Word first, promise first, gospel first, then the sacraments. And John Frame says, what the word presents to our hearing, the sacraments present to our eyes and also to our other physical senses. The content is the same. The medium is different. The content of the same is the same. The medium is different. So the purpose is the same. We looked last week at the fact that the word is given to us so that we know God loves us. And so the sacraments are given to us so that we know God loves us. The same reason as the word. It's a means of grace. God's instrument and means through which he communicates his love to us to build us up in our faith. To help us to trust him more. John Calvin wrote that uh, sacraments are truly named the testimonies of God's grace and are like seals of the good will that he feels toward us, which by attesting that good will to us, sustain, nourish, confirm, and increase our faith. It's a testimony of God that sustains us and increases our faith. God knows that our faith is weak and small. Our faith is weak and small, so in addition to giving us his word of promise, he gives us the tangible, sensible signs, the material seals of his promises in order to more fully persuade us of his love in a way that changes us. As we've, um, as we've seen throughout our series on worship Making sure that we know he loves us is important to him. He wants you to know that he loves you. And Paul prays to that end in Ephesians 3, which was part of our prayer of invocation this morning. I'll read it, starting in verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. I pray. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer. That's God's will for us. That's God's desire for us. The very fact that he has given sacraments to us, that he seeks to convince us of his love, is a testimony to his great love that strengthens our faith and it draws forth then our thanksgiving and our praise. So, um, so let's look then at the sacraments in general, right? 
let's look then at baptism in particular as a means of grace that God uses to build up our faith in his love. Um, Baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit as it's given to us in our text is the sacrament of initiation into and identification with God's covenant people. All the people, the corporate people that have a relationship with God, you are initiated into that, and the the sign and seal of it is baptism. It stands at the beginning of the Christian life as you're plugged into his church, which, by the way, is why we administer baptism during worship. It's reflective of joining God's corporate people. So it should be done in the, the presence of God's corporate people gathered together. And it's why we only do it once. Because once and for all, Christ died and brought us in to his church. You don't re-enter into his church over and over again. You've, you've been brought in. And so um, you don't need to be baptized twice or three times, depending on how you feel over the course of your life, uh, about your relationship with God. If you're in relationship with God, that happened once, and baptism signifies that once. Um, Ed Clowney says that Christian baptism is a naming ceremony. The baptized is given a name, the name of the triune God. Baptism gives Christians their family name, the name they bear as those called the children of God. That's a quote that's in the beginning of your bulletin for you. It's the sign and seal of our entrance into God's own nuclear family. And that's crazy. Because God's nuclear family is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God's nuclear family. And that's what we're brought into. And that's what uh, being baptized signifies. That we're brought into God's nuclear family. Baptism is the outward physical testimony of the inward spiritual reality that we are united to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, And therefore, we have the Son's own place in God's nuclear family. And that's why the baptismal formula, um, which is given here in its fullness, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is frequently, um, actually most often, shortened in the book of Acts. When people are baptized or when baptism is being talked about, it's being baptized in the name of Christ. Because we are united to Christ, the Son of God, and we're, we're given his place in God's nuclear family. Uh, Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, I wish we could spend several hours unpacking everything that uh, baptism means, uh, even just from this passage. But the truth of the gospel is that we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, which is how we receive the benefits of his salvation, because we're saved by his death and his resurrection. We receive the forgiveness of our sins— through his death. And then at his resurrection, God was proclaiming 
that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, fully satisfied all God's wrath uh, in, in his sacrifice. And so we receive the declaration of our righteousness through his life, through his resurrection, which we're united to in him. We enjoy his own status in God's sight. We enjoy his own relationship with the Father by being united to him by the Holy Spirit of love who lives in us. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, into the body of Christ. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. We're all made to drink of one spirit. Jesus is the one who baptizes us. This is, this is crazy stuff. Jesus himself is the one who baptizes us. John the Baptist said um, in Mark chapter 1, talking about Jesus, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. If you want to talk about why Jesus was baptized, come to the sermon discussion. Um, He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you see the Trinity at work there. The Father was pleased to anoint his Son, Jesus, with the Spirit. And then the Son turns around and anoints us and baptizes us with the very same Spirit, which means that the Father's declaration, you are my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, that rests on us. Because Jesus has baptized us with his Spirit. By his grace... The Father loves us as he loves his only Son. And this is signified and sealed. It's guaranteed and it's testified to in our baptism with water. And water is used because one of its most significant uses in our daily life is to wash things, right? Water is used because it has cleansing properties. It's, and our cleansing, our washing is spiritually necessary for us to be in relationship with the Holy God. Our sins make us filthy. We need to be washed from them. And so in the Old Testament, there are all these temple rituals to take care of that problem, right? Or at least to point to the answer to that problem. Uh, And and those rituals included various washings, as it's said in uh, Hebrews 9. Various washings. You come to this bronze laver, and the priest washes, and then he goes and he makes the sacrifices, etc., etc. Various washings, uh, the, the word is actually baptisms. Various baptisms. Right? So in Old Testament uh, temple worship, baptisms were present as a sign of cleansing and washing. So the water of baptism is uh, symbolic of that. It's the washing away of our sins by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, um, you know, without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement for sins. There can be no cleansing from sins. There can be no acceptance in God's sight, no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so animals were to be killed, and their blood was to be sprinkled on the altar, and it was to be sprinkled on the people as symbolic 
of atonement for sins, which, uh, by the way, is why we believe that uh, baptizing by sprinkling and and pouring uh, are also proper modes of baptism along with immersion. Those are all legitimate uh, symbols of what's taking place in baptism um, because the, the people were sprinkled by the cleansing blood of the sacrifice. Because we are a, sin, a sinful people and because God is a holy God, if we are to be brought into his presence, let alone into his very family, um, then the, the sin has to be dealt with and we need to be forgiven. If we're not to die for our own sins under God's wrath, then we need a substitute to stand in our place underneath that wrath, a holy sacrifice that God will accept in our place. And that sacrifice was Jesus, who, again, John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did that by his blood shed on the cross. He became a human so that he could stand in our place because only one of us could suffer for us. And then being divine, he could actually bear all the holy wrath of God for us, which he did as he shed his blood on the cross and died in our place. His sacrifice cleanses us from our sins, which is symbolized then in the cleansing water of baptism so that now in him, in Christ, we have access to God. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' blood is the the pure water that cleanses us. In our baptism into Christ, God cleanses us. God fulfills all the promises that he made long ages ago to his people, one of which we read in in our Old Testament reading, Ezekiel 36, where God said to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in being united to Christ, then, the spirit makes us new. He makes us new creatures now able to trust and obey God, our Father. John Murray summarizes then, baptism in this quote that also is in the beginning of your bulletin. He says that baptism signifies union with Christ in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection purification from the defilement of sin by the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit and purification from the guilt of sin by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. So thank you very much for putting up with all this heady stuff. Um, You're probably in anguish, sweating drops of blood to keep up with this stuff. Um, So let's take a break. 
and read a little of uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis illustrates this point for us in his book, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Um, How much background do I want to give you? Eustace Scrub, you've probably all read the books. Eustace Scrub uh, is this naughty, spoiled little child who um, is drawn up into this adventure in the world of Narnia. And it's a, an adventure at sea. It's a voyage. And he and his, his fellows, his cousins and other companions, they stop at this island. They stop at various islands on their, their way to the end of the world. And... Um, and they stop at this one island, and uh, Eustace goes off and finds a, a dragon's cave and all of his treasure. And um, being spoiled and greedy, he's, he's loving, uh, reveling in this treasure, and he takes this bracelet, and he puts it on his arm, and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's got this hideous pain in his arm, um, because as, as he discovers... Uh, his his greed and the magic of this island have turned him into a dragon, and now his huge, massive dragon arm is being pinched severely by this little man bracelet. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, he's in pain, he's suffering, he's sad, he's separated from his friends, right? He's not part of the group anymore. He wants desperately to be part of the group again. And um, Aslan comes along, who, if you're familiar with the stories, is the, the Christ figure, um, and Aslan, Aslan takes him and says, follow me, and he takes him up to a mountain, and then I'll read some paragraphs from this story, <clears throat> which I think illustrate baptism very well. At last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on the top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything, and in the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. And the water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe in it, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion, Aslan, told me I must undress first. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are the snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place, and then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness or as if I were a, ba a banana. <laughs> In a minute or two... I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were, they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Well, that's all right, I said. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath, like the first one. And I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the two others and stepped out of it. But 
as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. But then a lion said, You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now, and I had no skin on. Then he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. God has taken out the heart of stone from our flesh, and he's put back in a heart of flesh the way it's supposed to be. Right? And that's a beautiful picture of the cleansing and the renewing and the transforming grace that comes to us and is pictured for us in baptism, and it's true of us in Christ, by his grace. And this is why Jesus Christ instituted the sacrament of baptism, because it, as a means of grace, along with the word and the Lord's Supper, is a means by which he increases our faith, he assures us of his love, it's a means by which he makes us his disciples. It's a means by which he makes us his disciples, right? That's why it says in our text, which we're finally getting around to now, uh, Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In the original language, there's, there's only one main verb in his command, and that is make disciples, and then baptizing and teaching are then aug- augmenting that verb. They're actually participles in the original language. And so it could <clears throat> and perhaps should be translated, make disciples of all nations by baptizing and by teaching them. Make disciples of all nations by baptizing them, and by teaching them. So God uses baptism to assure us of his love for us, by pointing to Christ's sacrifice for us, by pointing to the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, through whom we receive all the benefits of his salvation. And God uses baptism to proclaim that he has brought us into his own family, that in Christ we're his beloved children, with whom he is well pleased, God uses baptism to promise us that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will, as the text says, be with us always, even to the end of the age. God uses baptism to build our faith, to encourage us to live as his disciples in the world. So baptism is something that the church has always practiced at the beginning of the life of discipleship, 
at the beginning of a life of following Jesus. Baptism is not something that you do when you reach some point where you really understand, where you really now believe the gospel. Of course, if you believe the gospel and you haven't been baptized, then you need to be baptized. And so come talk to me about that. But baptism has always been for our encouragement. It's always more something that God is saying to us than something that we are saying to him. And the institution of baptism comes in that text, which is more familiar as the Great Commission, in the context of Jesus sending out his disciples uh, to make disciples of all the nations. And so Dan Doriani says that baptism is a part of the mission to the nations. It's an evangelistic tool. Baptism is a part of, of the mission to the nations. Historically, statistically, the most effective way that Christians have made disciples is by having children and baptizing them and teaching them. By having children, making disciples of them, by baptizing them and teaching them. So if you're not persuaded of our belief and practice of baptizing infants, um, again, sermon discussion will be open for the debate. Um, But let me humbly suggest that um, maybe you need to learn to read the Bible the way that the original audiences would have read the Bible. And it may make more sense to you that way. Come talk to me about it later. Basically, we baptize our children because they're part of our family. Because they are part of our family. Because they're part of our covenant family. And God cares for our families. Because God is a family God. Because God has a family. Because God is a family. Because God is triune. So we baptize our children and we teach them everything that Christ commanded in order to make them disciples. And we consider them and we talk to them, not as pagans, not as unbelievers who need to be converted. We talk to them as members of the household of faith. They're part of our family. We share the promises of God with them. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them just the the same way we share it with each other. We tell them that they're united to Christ through his Holy Spirit, and we show them how their baptism points to this as good news for their faith. We tell them how much God loves them, and we teach them how they're to respond then to his love as his disciples with trust and obedience. And that's exactly how God uses your baptism in your life. Your baptism happened uh, once, maybe twice, probably a long time ago. And if you're anything like me, you probably look back on that time and think, surely I could not have been a Christian then. Surely I couldn't have been a Christian. Look how small and weak my faith was. Nothing like I am now. (laughs) Baptism isn't about your faith. As if at any point in your life, your faith was strong enough for you to be fully satisfied in it and then get baptized as the expression of a strong faith. Baptism isn't about your faith. Baptism is about God's grace to you in your salvation in Christ Jesus, and it's meant to encourage you in your trust in him. So, uh, as the, the Westminster says, improve upon your baptism. 
reflect upon your baptism. Consider the promises of God that are signified and sealed to you in your baptism. And be strengthened in your faith to live for him as his disciples in this world. Let me close with um, an exhortation from Paul in Ephesians 4. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen.